Thanks, Andrew. Uh, yeah, just give that to my wife. She's got the microphone, so. How long have I got? Uh, 45 minutes. <laughs> no, I just wanted to say hello as well, because I'm here, and it's been great to come back and to meet a lot of you, particularly yesterday. And I know people came from other places. And it's just one of those times we feel quite at home, so that's nice. But I'll let him do the most. I mean, I could tell you why we're in Australia, why we're in New Zealand oh, in winter. Go and do it. Okay. Well, we told um, the group yesterday, we're not usually down in the Southern Hemisphere since we moved back to the Northern Hemisphere this time of year. We're getting to the point where we like the warmer weather. However, the last week of June was a very big week in our family. So it started off on the 22nd of June with our... 45th wedding anniversary. Then the 26th of June was our um, middle daughter and her husband's 20th wedding anniversary. Uh, it's all right. <laughs> it's nice to celebrate things that have gone on. I don't think I'm that old, to be honest, but I guess I am. And then on the 28th of June, our youngest daughter, who lives on the Sunshine Coast, had her 40th birthday. So we actually had a whole family get together in New Zealand. So we all gathered together in Taupo, or Topor, if you want to do it correctly. And there were 15 of us, and we just had a great long weekend together. So this time two weeks ago, nine of them were climbing out Mount Tohara, which is at the back of Topor, and we were cooking Christmas dinner. We did. And we had Secret Santa and all that sort of Christmas thing. in July. Yeah, Christmas in July. But we just, we had to come. And it's been nice to meet other friends too and just to share what we have with you and you share what you have with us. So, Thank you. I'll finish. Do you want me to say anything else? <laughs> I got this. Thanks, Linda. Yeah, I just want to echo what Linda said. It is really uh, a joy for us to be here. When I walked in this morning... Um, there were so many faces that I recognised, it almost felt like I was coming home. I think I've been here more regularly than our home church in, New, in the UK. So, you know, maybe I'm on the roll now. You you know. But it's lovely to be here and to see you again and just have this opportunity to be here. The weather's a little bit challenging, though. It was a bit chilly this morning. We actually leave tonight. We're flying back up to the UK. And when we get home on Tuesday morning, the weather forecast is it's going to be 30 degrees. In England, can you believe that? You know, like the entire country will come to a standstill. You know, it's like one snowflake does that, and anything over 25 degrees Celsius, and we all die of heat stroke. But you're used to that. Anyway, it's good to be here, and thank you for the opportunity of just being able to share the word of God with you this morning. It's always a huge privilege, isn't it, to be able to open up the scriptures and just hear the Lord speak to us and. When we were lifting him up in worship this morning, that real sense of the presence was here. Um, he's always with us, but there are moments, aren't there, when it's more tangible than others, and deep within our hearts there's a longing for those moments. And when we encounter him, and we know we've met with him, it changes us. You know, we don't come here just to have our ears tickled, hopefully. Um, it's to have our hearts changed. And I want to open up one or two things this morning from the scriptures um, that I've just been thinking about 
these last few days. Um, when, you, when you look at the life of Jesus, what strikes me as extraordinary is that he spends 30 years in total obscurity, where no one knows who he is except his mother and his stepfather Joseph. No one else knows who he really is. And as far as we know, Joseph isn't on the scene by the time Jesus begins his ministry, so he's probably already passed away. And so he's growing up maybe in a family where perhaps he's the breadwinner, being the oldest in the family. But he's ordinary. He's, he's a, a carpenter. And yet, from his earliest days, his mum and his father, Joseph, would have been telling him the stories about his unusual birth. Because, you know, he certainly had an unusual birth. Everybody knows that. Everybody knew it in Nazareth. You know, a small town like Nazareth, if a girl gets pregnant before she's married, which was the case for Mary, you can imagine all the rumors that were going around. You know, later on in the early church era, the rumor that circulated about Jesus was that he was the illegitimate son of a Roman soldier to Mary. That was the talk. But he knew who he really was. Mary had that encounter, you remember, with the angel in her kitchen or somewhere in the house when the angel turned up, and she's a young girl, not yet married, and he says, hey, I've got great news for you. You're going to get pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> and she's shocked because you know, she's not married. And the angel in response to her question of, well, how's that going to happen? How's that going to work? I'm still a virgin. The angel said something so profound, so wonderful, so beautiful. He said, the power of the Most High God will overshadow you, and the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the baby that will be born in your womb will be called the Son of God. Father, Son, and Spirit, all there in that intimate beginning of Jesus. And Mary heard that. She's the first person in the history of the world to hear the news that God has a son. Because nobody knew that. People of God in the Old Testament, they didn't know that. They sometimes talked about their kings of Israel being like sons to God, but nobody knew that God had a son. And here's this ordinary girl in Nazareth who hears this news. And so when Jesus is born in that family, that unusual family. I'm sure Mary and Joseph would have told him the stories. And for 30 years, he grew up knowing that's who he really was, but no one else did. Until one day, he had a prompting from God in his heart to go down to the River Jordan and to hear his relative, John the Baptist, speaking. Now, John was a relative. His mother, Elizabeth, was a relative of Jesus' mother, Mary, so maybe they were cousins. And when John started to preach down there in the River Jordan, he knows that he's preparing the way for someone to come. And people ask John, are you the one that's coming? Are you the Messiah? Are you the promised one? He said, no, 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 it's not me. In fact, when he comes, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoelaces. When he comes, he's not going to baptize you in the same way as I am in water. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And then... He says, in fact, when he comes, he will be the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. You see, John received revelation of who Jesus was. 
And when Jesus comes walking along the riverbank down by the Jordan, John sees him and says to one of his followers who is with him, it's him, that one I told you about. He's the Lamb of God that's going to take away the sins of the world. Extraordinary moment. And John is there in the water baptizing, and the next minute Jesus is coming towards him in the water. And John's looking and saying, what are you doing, Jesus? Oh, I've come to be baptized. No, not you. You of all people don't need to be baptized because John knew who Jesus was. How's that? That's better. I'll take this off. No, I'll leave it. Okay. If it comes on again, it'll explode, won't it? <laughs> Woo, yeah, I'll wake you up. All right. <laughs> so there's Jesus in the water, and John saying, I don't need to baptize you because this is a baptism for forgiveness of sins. And John knew that there was no sin in the man standing in front of him. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Let this be so for the present. I want to do this to fulfill all righteousness. He's saying, I want to show you something. I want to demonstrate something that you don't know at the moment, you haven't seen. Because when he stood there in the water and he's baptized, he's modeling something of the inglorious reality of who God is. He stands there in the water, he's baptized and comes out of the water and the Holy Spirit descends on him. And the Father spoke. And God the Father says, you are my son, and I love you, and I'm proud of you. Just like the angel who had said to Mary, the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the baby born in your womb will be the Son of God. Angels knew who God was. They knew he was Father, Son, and Spirit. Here in the River Jordan, Father's affirming before everybody who Jesus is. He's my son, and I love him, and I'm so proud of him. See, from that moment, Jesus began to talk all the time about what God had given him to speak about. He had been silent for 30 years, and now the moment came when he announced what God was doing in his generation, that the, God had broken in to his people and was bringing truth to them. And wherever Jesus went, in, in the synagogues, in the temple, he talked about the things that God the Father had put in his heart. He talked about his Father. He did miracles. And he started to collect around him a group of young men and women who were really intrigued by what Jesus had to say. I mean, they, they didn't know that he was the Son of God. They didn't know God was his Father, but they recognized something so unique about Jesus that they just wanted to hang out with the guy. I mean, that's a very 21st century way of putting it. They wanted to become his disciples. Now, disciples were groups of mostly young men who collected around a particular rabbi or speaker who they wanted to just glean from their experience and their knowledge and they sit at their feet. And so that was quite a common thing. I mean, John the Baptist had a group like that. And some of them suggested by John, joined Jesus' group. And so this group of men and also women gathered around him. And for three years, Jesus tells them everything 
that he can about the nature of God. He describes God as his father. He shows them the miracles that he does as as indicators of the presence of God amongst them. And it would have been fascinating for those disciples. I mean, would you like to have been one? I I have my moments where I think, yeah, I would love to have been one of those disciples. Then I think, oh, probably I wasn't good enough. Because we tend to think like that. And maybe they even felt like that. Because the reality was some of them were quite unusual young men and women. I mean, I I don't know what you think about when you think particularly about the 12. If you've ever been up in Europe and been to some of the old cathedrals and churches there, you see stained glass windows with all the disciples in there. The first thing is they have these funny gold discs around their heads. They've mostly got beards and they look very old and somewhat religious. You know, they're always looking at heaven like that. And we could put these people into some sort of strange little odd box. But actually, they, they, were, they were just like us. And Jesus spends three years just pouring everything he knows in his heart about the nature of God into them. And on the last evening that he was with them, you remember that's, we call it the Last Supper, which we've just remembered as we've gathered around these tables and shared bread and wine. On that evening, it's the last evening that Jesus is going to be with them. Now, the disciples don't know that. As far as they're concerned, they're going to celebrate the Passover. They're in Jerusalem. It had been quite an exciting week. It started with like all these people tearing down palm branches. It looked as if any minute they were going to step into the palace. But as the week progressed, it went rapidly downhill. And all sorts of things were going on under the surface. There was whispering, there was plots. And of course, we know that even one of the disciples was part of that process. And Judas had gone off to the high priests and said, okay, you want Jesus? I'll deliver him for you for a fee. See, some of these disciples, having even spent three years with Jesus, were pretty messed up still. And then Jesus gathers them together for this celebration of Passover in this large upstairs room in Jerusalem and sits down and the very first thing that he does with them is he washes their feet because he's modeling to them what nature of a man he is. He's a, his heart of a servant to them. You know, he even washed the feet of Judas you know, you'd have thought, or maybe you'd have thought, when he came to Jesus, Judas, he might have looked him in the eye and thought, well, I'm not washing your feet. Because he knows what's about to happen. But even in that moment, Jesus is modeling something to them that's extraordinary. Even to the most broken of them. What he's doing is pouring all the love of God into them. See, as that evening unfolded, he said to his disciples in John 15, he said, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. You know, what's extraordinary about that is that Jesus needed to know he was loved. He needed to know that. He came into our world, lived amongst us, and is just like us. And in exactly the same way, he needed to know that he was loved. He needed, though, that God the Father was pouring love into him. In one sense, 
you could say he was perhaps one of the most lonely people that's ever lived. Because who really knew him? You know, when, when people know you, you don't feel lonely so much. But there was a moment in his life when Jesus said, only the Father knows the Son. And only the Son knows the Father. Which is wonderful, but it, in the back of that, there's, he must have felt alone at times. He, he'd poured himself into the disciples, and they still, they still didn't get it. You know, that evening in the Last Supper, it, it was almost amusing at times. Jesus would say things like, you know where I'm going, don't you? You know the way. And they're all looking at each other. Do you know where he's going? What's he talking about now? Did I miss the talk about where he's going? Was I fishing that day? And eventually, of course, it's Thomas who says, excuse me, Jesus, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? I mean, you'd have known, wouldn't you? If you'd have been... (laughs) Um, or or then a few moments later Philip says you know Jesus it would really help if you just showed us the father if we could see him that would really help us Philip how long have you known me haven't you realized if you've seen me you've seen the father and they're all going oh yeah But when he gets to this moment and says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you, none of them are saying, what do you mean by that? See, the reality was for those disciples, was in those three years they'd been with him, they really knew that he loved them. They felt his love. They'd experienced it. So it kind of raises in my mind the question, How did they know they were loved? What does love look like? How do you know when you're loved? How do we know if someone loves us? Well, there's a lot of clues, aren't there? Somebody wrote a book a few years ago about the five love languages. Some of you may have read that. There are different ways we experience love, but we know what it feels like to be loved. Equally, we know when someone doesn't love us. We can feel that too. In those love languages, there should be a sixth one, because my one's the sixth one, and that's called food. Um, (laughs) I experience love through food, (laughs) being fed, preparing food. I love to cook food and share it with other people. I guess they're all in there somewhere. But you see, we know what it feels like to be loved. And here are the disciples hearing Jesus say, in the same way as the Father has loved me, I've loved you in exactly the same way. He loved them in the way God loved him as the Father. Jesus, who needed to know love, loved the disciples in the same way. And we might think, well, of course God the Father loves Jesus. He's the eternal, perfect Son of God. Jesus is like saying, yes, and I've loved you in exactly the same way we get to receive the same level of love as the eternal perfect Son of God receives. So what did it look like? What does love look like? When you look at some of these disciples and you see their interactions with Jesus over those three years, you begin to see how Jesus loved them. They were a very interesting group. You remember two of them, uh, two brothers called James and John? They're very well known. They were there in the, in, the, in the group. They were actually Jesus' first cousins because their mum, 
whose name was Salome, was Mary's sister. So when they joined up to be disciples of Jesus, they already knew him. They kind of maybe grew up with him. They were fishermen in Galilee. And it's John who writes the book that we are looking at this morning, John's Gospel. But he never tells us his name in the book. He just calls himself, I was the one Jesus loved. Now, I've sometimes wondered, I wonder what the other disciples thought when they read that. Now, hang on. I, you know, I was there too, John. <laughs> Something in John, Jesus' cousin, deeply knew that Jesus loved him. And I'm sure the others felt it too. You see, the, these disciples, sometimes they were quite competitive and a bit jealous of each other. And Luke, in his gospel, tells us that same evening, the Last Supper, two of the disciples were arguing about who's the greatest, who's the most important one in the group. Now, you'd have thought after three years with Jesus, they'd have got that sorted out. But no, they're still in that kind of slightly wounded place, thinking I'm more important than you are, and I get to sit next to Jesus at this meal, right, because you sat next to him last week. You see, there's something going on in them hasn't quite arrived yet, but he's loving them in that. Now, for some of us, we can begin to identify with this, can't we? Because there are moments in our lives when we're so, like, wounded that, that we get jealous of one another and we're upset if something happens to this person and that person. And the disciples are like that. And Jesus is saying, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. I'm loving you even in those moments when you're feeling st- struggling and competitive and all those broken issues. The disciples had them. I, I, I think of James and John as being um, you know, young guys. Most, most of the disciples were under the age of 20. Uh, probably only Peter was over that. And the reason why we say that is that um, there was that incident where Peter says to Jesus, we've got to pay the temple tax. And uh, Jesus says, well, go fishing, Peter. And you remember he does, and he catches a fish, and there's a coin in its mouth, and that's just enough for Peter and Jesus to pay the temple tax. Well, what's that got to do with it? Well, only people over the age of 20 needed to pay the temple tax. So most Bible scholars think the disciples were just youngsters, young teenagers, young adults. And so the Jameses and Johns of this world were young guys. And... Jesus had a nickname for them. He called them the Sons of Thunder, which to me sounds like a motorbike gang. You know, I'm sure if they'd been alive today, they would have had it tattooed across their back. Sons of Thunder. You know, and they were a bit like that. One occasion, Jesus and the disciples were coming back from Jerusalem to Galilee and they passed through this town in Samaria and the people won't help Jesus. They won't provide food for him. So James and John, those lovely disciples who spent time being loved by Jesus, what's their solution? Cool down fire. Burn them. See this? And his brother Andrew. They're there by the, the Lake Galilee. I'm back. Okay, thank you. They're there there by Lake Galilee. And Andrew's been going off down to the River Jordan. He's heard John speak. He's in business with Simon, but he never seems to be there when the business is being done. And Andrew shows up and says, Hey, Simon, I've met the Messiah. And Simon's reaction seems to be another one. 
because lots of people claim to be messiahs, he doesn't seem to get terribly excited about Andrew's discovery. And then one day Jesus comes along, walking along the lake, and Andrew says, you know that one I told you about? It's him. Here he comes, Jesus of Nazareth. I heard about him, isn't he a carpenter or something? And Jesus comes along and says to Simon, hey Simon, can I borrow your boat? Now I don't suppose there are many boaties in Canberra, are there? Are there boaties here? You know boaties? If you're a boatie, you don't let your boat go to anybody, do you? You know, have you got the right shoes? You know, don't touch anything. I don't know whether Simon Peter was like that. But here's the carpenter from Nazareth, and Simon's the fisherman from Capernaum, and the carpenter wants to use his boat. And Jesus says, yeah, no, I'll just push out from the shore a little bit. I want to talk to the people, okay? And he preaches. And then he says, okay, Simon, let's go fishing. Now, the carpenter has just told the fisherman, let's go fishing. And Simon's been fishing all night, haven't caught anything, and says to Jesus, no, we've been fishing all night. This is not the time. Jesus said, let's go fishing. And Simon says this, okay, if you say so. That's virtually what he said. And off they go fishing, and they're out in the lake. And then the carpenter says to the fisherman, all right, put your net over the side. We have been fishing all night. We have not caught anything. But if you say so, okay, put the net over the side. And amazingly, there's this huge catch of fish. And when they get back to the shore, Simon says to Jesus, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. See, I think under the surface, stuff was going on there. See, the next time Jesus meets Simon, and he says to him, come on, Simon, follow me, he gets up and leaves everything. See, something has been drawing Simon. And he's part of the gang. He's one of the boys. You get the feeling that Simon is one of those people who, whenever he's in the room, you probably know he's there. And do you know people like that? You know. <laughs> they walk in and you know they're there. They often have an opinion about everything, which is loudly proclaimed. Um, and sometimes that sort of person can be very up here one minute, and the next minute, they're in despair. Well, Simon is so much like that. He has his moments of incredible um, revelation, and, and, and yet also his moments of complete disaster. I mean, one time, Jesus is talking with the boys and says, um, so what are people saying about me? And they answer, well, some of, somebody thinks you're Elijah, the prophet. Oh, I heard someone say, you were John the Baptist, come back from the dead. And Jesus says, oh, yeah, okay, but what about you guys? Who do you say that I am? And Simon immediately steps in. It's like he wants to get it in before any of these other jerks say something silly. It doesn't say that in the Bible, okay. <clears throat> but what he does say is extraordinary. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. How does Simon know that? He's been watching Jesus. And Jesus says, Simon, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven. See, Simon got revelation. Now, with Simon's temperament, you can imagine how that landed. <laughs> yeah, you hear that? I got revelation on that one. <laughs> and Jesus says, in fact, Simon, this revelation is so important, I'm going to build my church on it. 
And you, you, I'm going to give you a new name. I'm going to call you Rock from now on, which means Peter. Peter, the Rock. I'm building this church on this revelation you brought. You can imagine Simon, can't you? Okay? You heard that here? From now on, just call me Rock. You know. And off they go. And, and as they're walking down the road, the gospel says, Jesus said, okay, right, we're now heading to Jerusalem. And when I get there, I'm going to be arrested and put on trial and crucified. Stop right there, says Rock. He, it says, he took Jesus to one side. A little private word, Jesus. Okay? This is not good for morale. This is not the sort of thing to say. We're your boys. We'll be there for you. Later on, he would say, we've got swords. We can sort this. See, something about Simon Peter was the man. And what did Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. The rock becomes a grain of sand. He has these moments of incredible revelation. And within seconds, he's right down here. This is one of the disciples of Jesus. Now, I'm beginning to feel at home with this group. You see, as his followers today, we're not a lot different. We've got stuff going on. And Jesus said to those boys, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. See, he knows that we need to be on the receiving end of this incredible love. So how did Jesus love Peter? Well, acceptance. He didn't walk away from the guy. He told him some home truths, but he kept loving him. Even there in the upper room on that last day, after Judas has left and Jesus is talking with them, Peter says to him again, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always there for you. Well, I'm going to be there with you. We'll fight for you, Jesus. And Jesus looks at Simon Peter and says, you know what? By morning, before you hear the cockerel crow three times, you will have denied me. I'll never do that. I'm not going to. Others might, but not me. We know how the story developed. Jesus was arrested. And to be fair to Simon Peter, whilst all the others ran away, he followed behind. And we're told in the Gospels that he ended up in the high priest's courtyard where there's a fire burning, trying to find out what's happened to Jesus. And he's in the courtyard, then suddenly... This really scary young maid comes up to him and says, I know you. You're one of his followers. No, I'm not. Don't know what you're talking about. Not me. Never. Yes, you are. You're a Galilean. I can tell by your accent. No, I am not. Then another servant. You are. You're definitely one of his. I am not one of his bleep bleep disciples. Peter had been there. He's back there, isn't he? And Matthew tells us in his gospel, at that moment, they took Jesus through the courtyard. And it said, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Now, what sort of look would that have been? Would it have been, I told you so? I don't think so. You see, Jesus said, as the Father's loved me, so have I loved you. Jesus is being loved by all the love in the universe. Every moment. 
And Jesus says, I'm loving you in exactly the same way. Jesus would have looked at him across that fire with all the love of the universe in his heart for that man. I think we get the clue because as Jesus looked at Peter, Peter broke down in tears. See, he was one of, he thought, probably the best disciple who completely blown it. And still he's being loved. Now, I guess there are moments when every single one of us in the room have been like Peter. We've said things or done things that we just wish we hadn't said and we feel the pits. But the glorious reality is that Jesus looks at us in the same way. The look in the eye from him. A look from him. Well, how does he look at us? We see it in our hearts. We actually see it through each other. You know, as his disciples, we are to love one another in the same way. And we can actually look at people through our eyes with the same love. See, he's created this community of lovers who've been loved by him, who want our hearts to be filled with the same love. So he loved Peter in that way, the man who failed. He even loved people who didn't even make it onto the list of disciples. Remember the guy who wanted to be a disciple and he said to Jesus, well, I've done this, I've done that, I've kept all the laws, can I be one of the boys? He's thinking it's about what you have to do. And Jesus says, oh, okay, that's very good, all those things. Um, what about your cash? Why don't you just give all your money away and come and follow me? And remember the guy couldn't do it. And he walked away. He never even made it as a disciple. And it says... The Lord looked at him and loved him. See, love looks like a look. You can look at someone and you know whether they love you or not. And when the love of God, our Father, is filling our hearts, we can look at one another in exactly the same way. He fills us with his love in order for us to look to the needy and the broken. I mean, you've probably heard of a woman called Heidi Baker who works in Mozambique. How does she do it? She said, I love the one in front of me. See, Jesus said, as the Father's loved me, so have I loved you. Now stay in that place of my love. He loved them with all the love of the universe. Love is also communicated through the voice, isn't it? You know, you can say to someone, I love you. And something doesn't quite communicate there, does it? You know? There's a mismatch. Love sounds like something. It, the way we speak carries such weight to it. You know, we hear more through the tone than we do the actual words. Now, we don't know what Jesus' voice sounded like. Obviously, we don't know it. But here and there, we get glimpses of the way he talked to people and how in his words he's communicating something. One of the interesting ones an example of this is where some of the women disciples are involved. Now, Luke in his gospel tells us a list of names of the women who were disciples of Jesus. We, we tend to think it's the 12 men, but it's women too. Luke gives us a list. He says there's Joanna and Susanna, who we know nothing about. There's Mary Magdalene, and we've all heard of her. Then there's another Mary and another Mary and another Mary, <laughs> lots of Marys, um, these women are supporting Jesus' ministry, we're told. It sounds like they're supporting him financially. 
But of course, there's another couple of women who were in that group of friends of Jesus. And this is another Mary and her sister Martha. Remember, Mary and Martha lived in Bethany. I think of them as the Bethany sisters. Sounds like a country and western singing group, doesn't it? You know? um, but that, they were really close friends of Jesus with their brother Lazarus. He would regularly stay at their home. And so in that sense, they, they were close, intimate friends. And they, they were interesting people. Mary and Martha, the two sisters, well, I guess there was some sibling stuff going on with those two girls because they were so different. You know, those of you who have siblings, you know how this works, don't you? One of them is a doer. And you know which one that is. That's Martha. If something needs to be done, you would get Martha to do it because you know it would be done properly. And she would want it done properly. And woe betide anyone who doesn't do it properly. So when Jesus shows up for lunch one day, turns up at the house, says, oh, we're here. Can we stay for lunch, Martha? She says, sure, come in. Lovely to see you, Jesus. Oh, you've got the boys. Okay. That's 13 extra for lunch. Plus us three. 16 for lunch. Martha, as a doer, goes into overdrive. Because that's what we doers do, isn't it? We love to do it right. She gets into the kitchen, and it's all happening in the kitchen. The saucepan lids are clanging. The steam is rising. You know, it's all happening because we've got Jesus for lunch. And in the midst of all this, she's thinking, where's my sister? I'm doing this for Jesus. We've got the master for dinner, and she's nowhere to be seen. Typical. You know, sometimes it's like that, isn't it, in families? Well, where is Mary? Well, Martha decides to go looking for her. So, you know, the hair goes back behind the ear. She dusts off the flower and marches into the sitting room or wherever. And there's Jesus with his 12 young guys and her brother Lazarus. And there's Mary in the room with them all. Can you imagine the level of testosterone in that room with all those boys? There's Mary sitting at the feet just drinking in everything that Jesus has got to say because that's her temperament. That's her nature. She just wants to receive from him. So what does Martha do? She very quietly goes up to Jesus and says, no, not to Jesus, to Mary. She says, Mary, dear, could you possibly come and help me in the kitchen? No, it doesn't say that. She goes up to Jesus. Can you be Jesus, Andrew? She goes up to Jesus. Oi, Jesus! Tell her to come and help me. <laughs> it's not Jesus' problem. It's not even Mary's problem. Who's got the problem here? <laughs> it's poor old Martha. So what does Jesus do? He says to her, Martha, Martha, one dish would have been fine. Now, how did he say it? Did he say, Martha, Martha, one dish would have been fine. Thank you very much. I'm like, who do you think you're talking to? No, we don't know how he says it, except he says her name twice. He says, Martha, Martha. Now, what's the point of that? In, in the culture of the first century, where Jesus lived and worked, when you said someone's name twice, it was a sign of affection. It was a sign of love. And here's Jesus saying, oh, Martha, Martha. You know, you didn't need to win Master Chef Israel in the first century. You know. 
One dish would have been great. Mary's actually chosen something really good too. He's not criticizing her. He's not telling her off. He's loving her. In his words, his tone of voice would have communicated it. He did it with loads of other people. Simon, Simon, Satan's wanted to sift you, but I'm with you. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you under my wings like a mother hen does her chicks. See, this is the heart of deep affection speaking. So whilst we may not know the tone, the words show us that the very way he spoke to people would have communicated that love. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. Stay in that place of being loved. These disciples, these men and women, were not a lot different from any one of us. We need to be loved just as much as they did. And the glorious reality is he continues to do that. In some senses, we've had an expression of it today as we broke bread together. His death for us is a glorious expression of his love. But in our day-to-day lives, with our interactions with one another, he's pouring love into us through his body, the church. This is why church is a place to be a community of love. There's one other disciple I just want to briefly mention. This is an interesting one. This is a guy who I think Jesus didn't read his CV before he joined. Because this is Simon the terrorist. Okay, who? We know him as Simon the zealot. Now, zealots were first century terrorists. Well, as far as the Romans were concerned, they were terrorists. As far as the Jews were concerned, they were freedom fighters. You know, Israel was an occupied country. The Romans had a little fort everywhere, a big garrison in Jerusalem. And the Jewish people hated the Romans. Australia's never been an occupied country. But up in Europe, they've experienced that over the years. And when your country's occupied, it's the young people who rise up to oppose the occupying force. And it was no different in the first century. When the Jews were occupied by the Romans, it's the young men and women who became the freedom fighters. And they were called zealots. They hated Romans. They thought the only good Roman is a dead Roman. They had a special knife made with a curved blade called a sicari, which was really good. This is a bit grim. Really good for cutting throats from behind. And this is one of the disciples. Jesus, what are you doing having a guy like that in your group? See, these, these zealots believed that they should kill Romans at every opportunity. You know, when you do that, historically, what happens is the occupying powers take it out on the local population, don't they? Now, the Romans did exactly that. When Jewish towns and cities rebelled against Romans, they wiped the place out. About 15 years before Jesus began his ministry, a town about 10 kilometers north of Nazareth experienced that. They'd done something and the Romans took it out on the town. So they burnt the town. They crucified all the men and boys over the age of 12, about 2,000 of them. They raped the women and then sold them as slaves. Now, if that happens in your community, in your little province, you know, 10 kilometers from where you live, you're going to know people. 
Everyone would have known about it. Maybe they had relatives there. If you experience something like that, and it's your relatives that have been crucified and raped and sold as slaves, how does that leave you? You imagine the trauma in the hearts of people. And young people, how do we deal with that trauma? Many of them in these situations become angry and they want to vent all their anger at these Romans. That's what created zealots. Deep wounds in their hearts, which they're trying to work through. And he is one of, he's a disciple of Jesus. You know, he would have joined the guys and Jesus said, oh, okay, um, here's the word for today. Um, if a Roman soldier asks you to come and carry his bag for a mile, you can imagine Simon the Zealot saying, yeah, I get, do I get to stick him? No, carry it two miles. What? Don't ask me to do that, Jesus. They're bleep, bleep Romans. Well, because they killed quite a lot of Romans and things were taken out by the Jewish population, a lot of people turned against the Zealots. So the Zealots decided the thing to do was to go for the people, their own people, who worked for the Romans. Kill them. Teach them a lesson. People such as tax collectors. Remember the day Jesus introduced a new disciple to the group? He just joined. Boys, I've got to introduce you a new one of us. Um, this is Matthew, the tax collector. Oh, that's uh, Simon the terrorist. Can you imagine the dynamic that was going on there? You know, Simon the terrorist thinking, are you off your head, Jesus? Oh, I know. I get, I get to do it now? No. In fact, we're going to dinner with him tonight and all his tax collector friends. I can't. If my friends know I'm having dinner with a tax collector, it's me for that. See, that's the, the stuff that's going on. What had gone on in that man's heart to make him like that? What turned him into a zealot, a terrorist? We don't know. And Jesus would tell helpful stories, like forgiving people from our hearts, even forgiving people who've done unspeakable things to us. You can imagine Simon hearing that story in Matthew chapter 18, we read it, saying, don't ask me to do that. I can't do that. I can't love the Romans after what they've done to our people. No, no, don't ask me to do that, Jesus. We don't know how Jesus handled that with him. Maybe he just walked along beside him and put his arm around him. You see, love sometimes is expressed through appropriate touch, isn't it? You read the gospel stories, how many times Jesus touched people and it communicated love. From the smallest child through to the most unclean person, a man with a serious skin disease, he touched people. Little children, he took them in his arms. See, Jesus wasn't afraid to touch people because his touch communicated everything of the nature of the love of God as a father. Maybe he put his arm around Simon the zealot. Maybe he looked him in the eye and said, Simon, Simon, we can do this together. Maybe he just loved him. I don't know. But what we do know is this. After the resurrection of Jesus, 
And when the day of Pentecost came and we get the list of who's there, right in the middle of the list is Simon the Zealot. And what did those disciples do after Pentecost? They took this glorious gospel of Jesus to the ends of the earth. And where did Simon the Zealot go? Well, there's a story from the early church that says he took this love of the Father all along the North African coast, which was full of Romans. See, an encounter with Jesus, who is carrying all the love of the universe, transforms us even in our most traumatic and broken experiences of life. These disciples were just like us. And they had this encounter with Jesus. And he reached out to them because he was loved himself by his father and in the same way he loved them and as they walked in that love he said remain in my love that's exactly what they did wherever they went they still blew it they still made mistakes even in acts remember peter oh he got in such a muddle all about what you have to do as a christian he was still up and down even though he was a leader in the church again i find that very reassuring you know Jesus doesn't wait till we're perfect before he starts to work with us. You know, Satan will try and tell you that you've got to be really good enough before you can start doing something with him, with Jesus. But no, he loves you because he loves you because he loves you because the Father loves him because the Father loved him. See, we are a community of lovers and we're told to remain in that love. We may not be able to say too much to people. Perhaps we don't feel we've got the right words, but we can look them in the eye. Because Father's in us. His Spirit is in us. What's the Holy Spirit doing? The greatest gift of the Holy Spirit? Pouring the love of the Father into our hearts, it says in Romans 5.5. 5. He's pouring his love into your heart, my heart, so that when we are walking out of the church doors, back to work tomorrow, school, college, wherever, the business place, the marketplace, into the supermarkets, we're looking at people with all the love of the universe in us. Even if you don't feel like it. You're looking at the woman across the checkout. And in your heart, you can be thinking, Father, just right now, pour your love into her. One of these days, she's going to look at you and say, what? What's going on? Oh, I was just talking to my dad about you. <laughs> you see, we are this community of lovers because we have been loved. We are being loved. The love of God as a father is not one tickle on a Sunday and that's it till next Sunday. He's living continually in us, pouring his love into our heart so that we can be his people in this broken world. And it's hugely broken. I don't need to talk about that. You know that. The extraordinary thing is we're the answer to their brokenness. Because we carry the love of God in our hearts. We can introduce him, them, her, whoever, to the one who is the carrier of this love. Jesus said, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. He, he's saying it to you this morning. As the Father's loved me, so have I loved you. So am I loving you right now. Whether you've had a Simon the Zealot week, 
or a Martha and Mary week or a, I don't know, Simon the Fisherman week. He's loving you right now. He's loving you in all of those situations. And he's just washing you with that love. Just where you are right now, just maybe you want to put your hand on your heart. I don't know whether that works for you. Just maybe put your hand here and say, Father, thank you. You're loving me now. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're loving me right now with all the love of your Father. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're pouring all the love of the universe into my heart right now. Thank you that your love for me is as unique as I am. You know exactly what I need. None of us are beyond the touch of your love. Whatever our life has been like in the past, whatever we're facing in this coming week, you're loving us right now. Father, thank you that you sent your son into our world to show us who you are, what love is like, and how we can be this community of lovers here in Canberra, in our neighborhoods. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Amen. Now, I guess there's probably some of you that would just really value someone just blessing what Father's doing in your life at the moment. Maybe there's some stuff you want prayer for. And I know you have a ministry team here, so I don't quite know how you normally do that, but I guess there's going to be people, because I've seen a few badges, (laughs) uh, who would love just to, to bless what Father's doing in you and just stand with you in the things that happen in your life. So, Andrew, can I hand that over to you? Yeah. Can we just stand as we conclude the service? Adam, are you happy to come? Or Beth? If we just uh, close our time together in prayer. And, you know, I, I have no doubt that for each and every one of us here this morning, that there is more and there forever will continue to be more of the love of God that both he is desiring to reveal to us and that there is a sense in which we can be both assured and reminded of not just in that intellectual reality but as we talked about from Romans and Galatians that experiential knowledge and understanding and revelation of God's love. So I'm going to pray that that is the case for each and every one of us this morning. But I I do think that as we hear and respond to a message like this, I've discovered in my life that there are times and there are ways in which we can hinder the flow of God's love in our lives. It can be perhaps in areas of unforgiveness. Maybe for one of us, maybe for a few of us here, there has been some some horrible, terrible things that have happened to us that have caused us to hold on to, to bitterness or unforgiveness. Maybe there is brokenness, broken parts of our hearts and our lives where for 
whatever reason, there's a sense that we know God's love, but there's been an unwillingness to really allow His grace and His mercy and the fullness of His love to really move in those areas where there's things that are just like that that picture that I had this morning of realities that are causing shadows in our lives. And I do just have that sense this morning that as the Lord just overshadows us with His love and His grace, that He's, He's really wanting and longing for the fullness of His love to shine forth even into those areas of our lives and our hearts this morning. So I'm going to pray, and just as I pray, if the ministry team, would you like to just move forward now? Father, I, I just thank you that there is a reality to your love that we will never fully comprehend. We will never fathom the fullness of its heights and its depths and its breadths. For all eternity, we will revel and experience, encounter and be in awe and wonder at the greatness of your love. But at the same time, Lord, there is a God who loves us so much that He sent His Son to die. And He invites us. He stands there with arms that are wide open, inviting us to come and to receive and to revel and to encounter and to have our lives forever transformed by the reality of the knowledge of His love. So I pray for each and every one of us, Lord, that we would have that picture of you as our Father. A Father who's waiting. A Father who has paid the ultimate price. Has given everything that he had to give so that he might welcome us home. Embrace us with His everlasting arms of love. And I thank you that we cannot experience and encounter that love without it transforming the very core and the nature of who we are. But I do just particularly, Lord, want to pray for those of us this morning, whether it's few or many, where we just know that there's, there's stuff, there's baggage, there's blockages, there's just not been a capacity for your love really to go deep in our hearts. And I pray that you'd show each of us, Lord, whether there are areas of, of unforgiveness, of sin, of whatever it might be, brokenness, hurt. I thank you that as we see you as that God who walks alongside us, That God who longs to express your affection to us and your words and your touch. That Lord, this would be a moment where you go deeper in the hearts of your people than you have before. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you know that there's stuff that you would like to just share with someone, have someone pray for you, I want you to
invite you to come forward now. And the prayer team, and I'll be here as well, we'd love to just stand with you and pray that there would be a fresh encounter of the love of your Heavenly Father for you this day. Just one more thing as well. If you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, if this language of having any concept of a God who loves you enough to pay for your sins on a cross, if that's you and you want to experience, could be for the first time, could be a recommitment, the grace and the mercy and the love of your Heavenly Father, then just come and see me and I'd love to just pray with you this morning in that regard. Bless you this week. Amen. Come forward now if you need prayer.